I was sleeping around, just a horny young gay, having lots of sex and lots of careless ways. Then I got the word from my drag mother. Come on, little miss. Now we work with ending HIV, supporting and informing our community, serving up a podcast celebration across the generations. And that is why we're here. <laughs> this is a sexual transmission. Christoph. And Blaze. Hi, I'm Blaze. Hi, I'm Steph. And welcome to Sexual Transmission, a sex-positive podcast for the people, queer people specifically. Welcome to our episode which is commemorating and celebrating World AIDS Day. World AIDS Day takes place on the 1st of December each year. It's an opportunity for people worldwide to unite in the fight against HIV, to show support for people living with HIV, and to celebrate and commemorate those who have died from an AIDS-related illness. Founded in 1988, World AIDS Day was the first ever Global Health Day. This year, the UNAIDS World AIDS Day theme is Global Solidarity, Shared Responsibility. Amazing. And you were telling me just before that the AIDS ribbon was the first ever commemorative ribbon to be created and, and used as a thing. It and, was. And now, you know, basically there are dozens and dozens got of... daffodils, we've got pink cancer ribbons. ribbons. Yeah, we've got, yeah, we've got uh, all sorts. Mm. And it was founded, I think, before that ribbons were just worn for, you know, military service and, you know, mm. service things. And it was, yeah, it was really revolutionary, the fact that people were wearing these ribbons. And, you know, there are famous photos of Elizabeth Taylor and, you know, mm. celebrities going to the Oscars in the 90s. It was a real kind of stand of solidarity it that really people could was. really, you know, because the red ribbon was something that everyone recognised as, you know, support in the, the fight against HIV and AIDS. If you wore that ribbon in, in public, you know, as a public person or a, a celebrity, then you were really making a stand to stand behind the cause, which was, you know, quite a political act. Absolutely. You know, a, a very visible element. And I think that still stands. You know, everywhere I go, if I see someone wearing an AIDS ribbon, you know that there's somebody who either has contributed in some way to the cause or is an activist and who is willing to stand up and talk about it, which Mm. is what we need. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Still. Absolutely. The red ribbon has a, a significance for us as well. It certainly um, does. That when we first met, um, we were working on a musical together and and I think I disclosed my status to you and said how important World AIDS Day is. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a lot of discussions about, you know, how could we do something to help mark the day and also to help um, raise some money. So Absolutely. we arranged for you to go and do some collecting, bucket collecting on Queen Street in full in high whore drag. Full high whore. <laughs> high whore silver away. <laughs> At what time? Like 9.30 oh, in the morning, I think, that we were on the street? Yeah, because we were on, we were in the dressing room at the show That's preparing. Right at like 6am and we did we had that beautiful moment where you disclosed and at that moment I was like oh yeah this is a lifelong relationship Mm. forever Mm. and ever and yeah we were there at 9.30 and we were there virtually all day it was till like 3 3.30 and then we went and did the show that evening I think I was in drag for something like 18 or 19 hours that day. It was yeah, crazy. It was a double show. It was, it was a night? double show. That's yeah. right. Yeah, so we finished at like 1 a.m. So she's, <laughs> she's on the street in heels, full drag, full drag, collecting all day. Mm-hmm. Then she went and had a little lie down, lie down. had a shave, kept yep. all the makeup on apart yep. from that. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. So we kept the eyes on and then shaved the face off and then repainted the face. And, and then, and then back out there, high back out there. Yeah, yeah. I actually shows. think I went and had like a reflexology massage or something <laughs> afterwards so that my feet could withstand more. More heels in the evening. Reflexology in full drag. In full drag. Yep, that's the one. But and that kind of started a tradition for us, didn't mm. it? You know, over the last three years since then, every World AIDS Day, we've had a little moment together, yeah. and that's been extraordinarily special. And each year, I make a um, a different version of the ribbon for you mm. to wear. The, the yeah. last year's one was an enormous, it was enormous uh, sequin covered, <laughs> yeah. glittery, ridiculous yeah, thing. Exactly, camp as tits. Of course, and. 
I think, you know, for me as a young queer, World AIDS Day has been, I guess, the most pivotal part of my sense of community mm. and my sense of my own standing within gay history and queer culture and queer history. And that's something so beautiful that you have given me as my mother, Aww. you know, and something I reflect on every single year and continue to learn things. Mm. Every time we have our little World Aids Day moments, I connect in with that and yeah. it's truly special. Oh, darling. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is really beautiful that, you know, through the generations we get to remember and to commemorate, you know, amazing people. And and I remember actually the reason that the thought of, of doing fundraising came to me was um, there was a point in, in the show that we were doing where there were photos of, of people mm-hmm. who had died of complications to their AIDS illness. And yeah, I just remember seeing these photos flash up and thinking, wow, you know, these people were all someone's boyfriend, someone's brother, someone's son or daughter. And yeah, it just, it just really came to me that it was something that we, you know, because the show was related to the mm. illness, it was mm-hmm. something that we really had to mark and maybe create some sort of awareness. And, yeah. and we really did that, yeah. That was because we held that little vigil almost and with yeah. the p- big performances after the show mm. and I mean you spearheaded that whole thing and I one thing I loved about that whole thing was even j- right down to the selection of the song that we were going to perform <laughs> it had to have a certain flavor and we we performed to um, Donna Summer, Barbara Streisand, Enough is Enough mm. and it, it was it was you know it had that beautiful moment of tranquility and reflection mm. at the start and then it goes into this really uplifting yeah. song which kind of speaks to fighting stigma and mm. it was, yeah, deeply, deeply empowering. And the community building aspect of it was just bringing yeah. all of those people together. It was really incredible. Yeah, it was fabulous, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, because at the end of the show, we um, we actually had the rainbow flag from the AIDS Foundation. That's right. And we had a whole bunch of audience members and people from the community that we organized to be there and we all walked down the stage and then through the street Mm, outside mm. of the theatre. And um, we had this little kind of um, retro, I guess, kind of um, commemorative march. Yeah. And we all stood with candles and, and, um, yeah, we gave speeches and then then you guys gave that beautiful performance. It was was stunning, really, really. Which, I mean, I guess World AIDS Day has often been a a very kind of sad experience and a a time where you have to kind of um, take stock and remember people you've lost. But I think there more and more is becoming an idea of celebration as well. Absolutely. Celebrating those people's lives, which is beautiful. What I find really exciting, speaking about that little commemorative piece we had in that show, this year for World AIDS Day at NZAF, I'm producing a a variety show, Mm. um, which is basically showcasing various performances from the communities that the organisations that support people living with HIV in New Zealand support. And it really, in organising this, it has really felt like a celebration. And the people who are coming, who are attending the event, I think I'm most excited about. The, The various people, you know, celebrating community members, celebrating people who do the work in the community, and people who benefit from that, you know, celebrating those lives of those people. And, you know, we are speaking to Paul Blatchford in today's Mm. episode who has some incredible stories. And he will also be speaking at the show. Um, So if you like what you hear in the podcast today, come along. I think you'll be listening to that. If you're listening to it on World AIDS Day, the show is tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So come along. It's at Thievery Studio on Karangahape Road. Um, And if not, you've already missed it. Yeah, sorry about you. (laughs) There's always next World AIDS Day. But that is exactly the thing, isn't it? It's becoming a really gorgeous celebration for our community, Mm. Um, a time to come together to do some community building, to reflect and celebrate. Yeah, Mm. so beautiful. So um, shall we listen to the interview that we did with Paul? I mean, it was so amazing Mm -hmm. hearing, you know, his story and his wisdom. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. Me too. On with the show. (laughs) 
Our honoured guest today on the podcast is Paul Blatchford, an HIV advocate and public speaker. Paul has been living with HIV for over 20 years, a devoted husband, a proud stepdad, a foster dad to five children, an adoring grandfather to 13 and counting. After losing many dear friends in the 80s and early 90s to AIDS, Paul is passionate about ending HIV and mental health stigma and discrimination. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Blaze. I'm thrilled to be here. It's an absolute honour to have you here today with us. Thank you. So welcome, Paul. I've heard so much about you. I know that you've um, you've spent a lot of time and worked with Blaze on lots of um, really interesting things that we'll get into later. But um, I was just interested in hearing a little bit about your story and how you came to um, start working within the, the HIV sector. I was born in the early 60s and I came out in the early 80s and I'd no sooner come out and the AIDS epidemic hit. And then it was known as the gay cancer. And it was a time when you lived in fear. People didn't want to touch you, be in the same room as you, breathe the same air as you. Discrimination and stigma and ignorance was rampant. I grew up in a very homophobic, racist, white supremacist family, Mm -hmm. and it was everything that I wasn't. So it was a very, very confusing world to grow up in when you were told that you didn't belong, you didn't have any place in the world, you didn't have any rights to even exist, really. So it was a very, very difficult and confusing time in what you saw. At a very early age, in my early 20s, I started losing a lot of friends very quickly. And I remembered a conversation I had with my mother when I was about... 25 years old, and I'd lost seven friends in three months. And she'd come around and I was crying. She was not a sympathetic woman. And she said to me, oh, what are you crying about? And I said, listen, Carol. I used to call her Carol when I was pissed at her. So it was, listen, Carol, (laughs) you've had a lot of friends die, and that's sad, but they had a life I've just lost seven friends in three months and not one of them has made it to the age of 30. And her reply to me was, oh, don't be so bloody disgusting and ridiculous. They deserve to die of AIDS. That's God's punishment on them. Everybody knows that. And looked at me in disgust and I can remember my heart absolutely breaking and thinking how can any human being think that about anybody let alone her own son, Mm. when she turned to me and said, every gay person deserves to die of AIDS, it's God's punishment on them. Mm. She looked me straight in the eye and I was, as I say, utterly broken and it was many, many years of mental health issues and confusion and depression before I could find my own way in life, my own Mm. self-worth my own, why am I here? What is this about? I wasn't born to be abused and then die, surely. Mm. And I slowly over time learned to gain my own life, my own self-worth, my own path. And I thought, no, I have a purpose here. And my story is an important one, Mm. regardless of what she or anybody else says. We each have a, a really important story to tell. And so I, around about the age of 50, so about six years ago, thought, I need to find my voice. I need to tell my story. There are lessons to be learned. I could save lives. I could change minds. And so I remember having a friend who was a public speaker, and he was talking about it, and I thought, how do I do that? How do I find my voice? How do I tell my story? Mm. And so I inquired into public speaking for the Positive Speakers Bureau through Positive Woman and did a course, did their seminar and found my voice slowly, found how to speak without reverting to anger or shame or depression or anything that came along with it. Mm. And 
spoke to various people from all various angles, parts of life, doctors, nurses, medical students, and I realised that even in fields like that, there was still ignorance, there was still stigma, there was still wrong information. Mm. And I realised very quickly this was not just about telling my story, this was about education and that you you combat fear, you dismiss ignorance and fear through education, through fact, through medical fact. And it's been an amazing journey when you talk to people and see the light bulb go on and know that you've changed somebody, the way they look at things mm. and the way they approach things like HIV AIDS. It's a very, very powerful thing. And it has been a purpose for me, and I absolutely love it. Mm. And I hope that in hearing my story or what I can tell people to combat ignorance and stigma in HIV AIDS changes other people and changes the way we look at HIV AIDS. And it's, it's an exciting time in our history. Mm to be alive, to see what we've been able to see, the advances in HIV AIDS, especially in the last five years or so, have been phenomenal. Mm, absolutely. And I have no doubt in my mind at all that we will see the end of HIV AIDS in my lifetime and very soon. Mm. And I really know that. I'm so proud of the... HIV AIDS community, the rainbow community, the activism, the people who put their names, their faces, and who have stood up to be counted. Mm. These are the people who have got us to where we are now, who have been on our side, have fought our fight. It's incredible to see how far we've come and how far we will go. We will knock this bugger off. Mm -hmm. And it's so exciting. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to go back. You talked about your mother's attitude to you and to all gay people. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess I just wanted to give a little bit more background of you know, what the world was like when AIDS did hit our community. And, and unfortunately, your, your mother's attitude was the attitude of, you know, a, a huge amount of our population. A lot of our community was facing that from their family or people that they trusted, from teachers, from the police, people who worked in the medical fields as well. So, you know, it was not only a time where our community was being ravaged by a disease, but we were also in a place where our community was thought of as second-rate citizens, I guess, which, you know, compounded what was going on for us with the attacks from the disease. It's such a bleak time in our history. It's crazy to think about now. I recently told a, a story. The first clue my mother had to my being gay was she caught me dressing up in her clothes at the age oh, of seven yeah, years old. <laughs> you know that one? <laughs> and she would tell me on a daily basis... She would teach me about the lessons of life as far as queers and things like that, that they were filth, that they were scum, that they were perverted and disgusting. Mm. I remember at about seven or eight years old, standing in front of the teacher as you would to get words spelt for you and to be written down in your little book. And uh, when I came to ask her what my words were, I asked her how to spell perverted and depraved. I can remember the look on her face with her mouth almost hitting the floor and saying, well, why do you want to know how to spell those words? And you could see that, you know, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old child should not have heard those words. And I said to her, because that's what I am. That's what my mother wow. said to me, I am. And... That was life mm. for me on a daily basis. Mm. She would come up with different expressions every day, filthy faggot, perverted pufta, and she would have stories about how disgusting they are. Mm. We had a, a neighbour who was older than me and who was clearly an out gay man, and uh, she would tell me never to go near him or never to touch him, and, and she would say... He's as queer as a three-bob watch. And I'd mm. go, well, what does that mean? And she'd go, well, how queer do you think a three-bob watch is? It didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Mm. 
I'm going to was... give myself a three bob watch. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we should we should all we should all find yeah. three bob watches and wear them as a, a badge of honour. That was and that was <laughs> life in general. Uh, we, it was illegal. It was legal to discriminate against us. Not only was it legal, it was totally acceptable. Mm. And as you said, by teachers, by police. I remember going out to work and telling somebody I was gay and and then saying, don't tell anybody, Mm. don't tell anybody. And I think, but why not? Mm. But they were all in fear of losing their jobs. Nobody was out, Mm. anything like that. And I wasn't going to be a person that said nothing, that had myself away. Mm. And it did mean losing a lot of friends. Mm. I had very dear friends at the moment they found out I was gay. It was done. I was dead Mm. to them, Mm. you know. And I realised, well, they're not friends at all. If they don't accept you for who you are, they don't have a place in your life. Mm. And don't take their... They're rubbish on board. It's not your problem, it's theirs. Mm. You know? And it took me a long time to understand that. Yeah. But it was the world we lived in for a very, very long time. Absolutely, yeah. And I get more proud and more proud and more proud with each generation that I see, with how comfortable they are with who they are, yeah. how accepting they are. I remember having a conversation with a cousin's daughter when she was 14 years old and she had put on Facebook that she was going to a rainbow event. And I thought, oh, goodness. And I said, wow. I said, that's amazing. I said, I'm I'm really proud of how accepting you are of the rainbow community. And she came straight back to me with, oh, I'm bisexual. (laughs) And I thought, you know you're bisexual at 14. And she said, yes, I kissed a girl and I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it was just Wonderful. And her parents were, my cousin was about eight years younger than me, Mm. but younger enough that he was totally accepting for his daughter that it was just as long as she was happy and content with her life. And I'm so proud of the younger generations Mm. and how how they've become accepting and not only tolerant, but standing up for the rights of others and seeing – the rainbow community is totally normal Mm. and that this is life and we are all individuals. We all bring something to the table. Mm. When I went to choose a career or wanted to know or or was thinking about what I could do, I was always told what I couldn't do. Oh, you can't be a designer, only puffs do that. Mm. Oh, you can't be an artist, only puffs do that. And I thought, well, yes, if it wasn't for puffs, you wouldn't have clothes or a house or artwork. <laughs> exactly. Or taste. Or good hair. Yeah, or good hair. <laughs> no. So that's probably... Yeah, no, I mean, that's so true. And and I also think about, you know, when I came out was maybe only a few years after you, but I do remember feeling that I'd lost a lot of people who I'd thought of as, you know, friends or family as a child growing up. But I gained so many people in a very quick time who were kind of disenfranchised in the same way. And you say the the two words, I'm gay, and suddenly you lose a huge number of people, but you gain a massive number as well. And the community that I was, you know, welcomed into with open arms just became... The people who kind of brought me up, really, and and taught me about what it was to to not only be gay, but to be accepting and not only to accept other people, but also to accept myself. And I learned so much in those first few years that I never, ever thought was possible, which was such a, a, a beautiful awakening, you know, as a young person to find those people. We get to, uh, as as RuPaul says, often to her girls who are very upset about their family not accepting them, she says, we get to choose our family. Mm. It's a privilege. Mm. And I always smile when I hear her say it because I think it's so true. So true. That we get to choose our family. If people don't want to love us, then that's great. That's that's fine. That's their prerogative. But we get to choose. Mm. And, And I... Can't believe the life I have now. I could never have seen as a youngster, as a young gay man, as a very confused man growing up, that I would ever see rights like same-sex marriage, Mm. the ability to have children or grandchildren. When I get called granddad by one of my grandchildren now, it 
tickles me every time, <laughs> you know. The possibilities are endless and there are no limitations even when it comes to HIV AIDS now with the medications being so good. Mm. If you're on medications and you, you're undetectable and to what that means for us, mm. it doesn't limit you to what you can do, who you can be, where you work. It's an incredible time to mm. be alive and mm. to see the changes that I've seen in the last 30 years. Yeah. To me, there have been more advances in that way in the last 30 years than there have in the last 3,000. And to be alive and see that, it gives you faith. It gives you faith in in people Mm. that, you know, they're not all bad. They can learn. You're going to have your people out there whose minds cannot be changed, be it through their religion or through their upbringing or whatever. But as a whole... We are a world of people who are changing, who are evolving and who are accepting and tolerant Mm. and who want to learn. It's it's an amazing time to be alive Mm. and witness what's happening. Yeah, no, it really, really is. So, Paul, you mentioned the advancements over the last 30 to 40 years in the HIV and AIDS treatment space. And, you know, obviously there has been a vast shift. You know, now we have tenofovir, disaproxylam, trisidabine, lamivudine, dolutegravir, which allow people to live beautiful, happy, healthy lives. And can you speak to, I guess, your experiences of what you've seen in the shift from then till now? As I said, what an incredible time to be in the HIV community to see what's happened in the last 30-plus years. It was a slow, long, hard start. They were tough times back in the 80s, 90s, and even into the early 2000s. It was a death sentence for the first 25-plus years of HIV AIDS. It was a death sentence. I lost so many friends. The medications were so bad and so debilitating that you often would die from the effects of the medications rather than the HIV AIDS and complications. And it was a horrible thing. And even when I was diagnosed circa 2000, it was still a death sentence. You were given three to five years. And I remember I was living in Melbourne where I'd met my partner, now husband. And I moved up to Canberra to be with him a year later. And it was like being the only gay in the village as far as HIV. They had an HIV clinic, if you wanted to call it that. But it was an awful interrogation. My first session was with the doctor and nurse on one side of a glass partition and and me on the other. And as I said, this was in 2000, so this is not ancient times, but I can remember them not wanting to be in the same room as me or breathe the same air and ask me questions through a microphone through this glass partition. When I did get put in a room with a nurse who sat higher up than I was and quite far away, she had a list in front of her of questions to ask And the first thing she said to me was, I've never worked in HIV, so let's learn together. And I can remember thinking in my head, I'm dead. This is it. I'm done. Oh, my gosh. The difference between Melbourne and Canberra. You know, I moved from Melbourne, which was a good place to have HIV if you're going to have it. You know, the doctors were understanding. There was medical knowledge. And Canberra was like stepping back in time 500 years. And um, she started reading out the questions. And one of them was, is your HIV affected by mental health or something in that way? And before I had time to even answer her, she looked at it and she went, oh, I don't know, I'll just tick no. And I later went to get, I had what I was later to find out a mental illness called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which was from the 
bullying from my mother as a child. I'd had it since I was 12. And it was later diagnosed. And when I would get a shock, I would go into post-traumatic stress disorder and wouldn't be able to work. So I went to their equivalent of WINS over in Australia, Centrelink. And with my doctor's nurse's notes and uh, that they had, etc., and said, look, I can't work. I have HIV and I have mental health problems. And they looked down on her notes and saw that that your mental health does not affect your HIV and refused to give me any help uh, because of the ignorance of this nurse. And I went home and I said to my husband, I'm dead. We need to move. We need to move. And we did shortly after, about a year or two later, move to Auckland where things started to improve. They still weren't good. They still weren't good. You were still seen as a bit of a leper. You were still distanced. But I do remember coming to Auckland, my first appointment at the Green Lane Clinic. This would have been 2006. There was an amazing woman there who is a stalwart of our community, who you will know, the beautiful Karen Ritchie, who we all call Mother Karen. (laughs) Beautiful. And... She came up to me after I'd come out of the appointment with the doctor and I was in tears and she threw her arms around me and she said, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Mm. And I can remember for the first time ever thinking, I believe it, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. The medication then was starting to improve. The medication I went on was very, very heavy, Mm -hmm. had an effect on the body. I I will live with liver and kidney problems for the rest of my life, but my liver and kidneys don't work properly and never will because of the heavy medications, but they kept me alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Through a lot of years where I didn't care whether I was dead or alive, I was ready to go. And a lot of those years, especially even coming back from New Zealand, back to my family where the abuse kicked in again, the mental health problems kicked in again, the insecurities, the suicidal thoughts, which had followed me a lot of my life, kicked in. And I wanted to die. I was ready. But the support was there. There was encouraging people. I got put on to places like Body Positive, the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. And you saw these people that were encouraging and said, we can do this, we can do this together and we can help you. And it was not something that I'd ever had anywhere. And slowly but surely you think, okay, I can get through this. You know, you you get rid of the toxic people out of your life. You surround yourself with these people who are encouraging, who are accepting, who are helpful, who have these medical contacts, who support you through it who give you the knowledge, tell you about your medications, explain what they do. And they got better over the years and better over the years. And I remember around about 2008, somebody saying to me, you're undetectable. Well, I didn't know what that meant, Hmm. but it sounded good. (laughs) And they said it means that the HIV in your body is so low that it can't affect you. It can't affect anybody else. You can have a long and healthy and normal life. And it stunned me because I didn't think I was going to make 40, let alone 50. Mm. And I'm 56 now and the happiest, the healthiest that I've ever been in my life, you know. Extraordinary. I, I say to people all the time now, I love my life. I love it. It's a humble life. And it has its struggles, but boy, it has some wonderful, wonderful experiences, you know. I'm in love with my husband after 20 years still. You know, we have a beautiful relationship. We have children, we have grandchildren, we have a marriage that is the envy and should be of a lot of my straight friends. You know, I have the respect of the community that I live in. And I love supporting them. And not just my HIV community, the rainbow community, the neighbourhood I live in. It blows my mind every day, but I wake up grateful every day to have survived to the point 
where I could be undetectable, where people could understand what that means mm. to us, to our community, to people in general. A phenomenal time. The medication now is so good. You know, we are so close to a cure, but we have the next best thing. You know, we have medications that you talked about briefly there. You talked about some names. I'll explain them. We have PEP. Mm. So, you know, if you have a sexual experience and you think, okay, something might have happened here, if you can get to your clinic within 72 hours, go on PEP, that's post-exposure prophylactic, and you take that every day for a month, that will make sure the HIV does not hit your body. You will not become HIV positive. If you want to have a relationship with somebody who is HIV positive, you can go on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylactic, and you can take that medication, which is the tenofovir you were talking mm. about, and that will prevent you getting HIV. You cannot get HIV. If your partner is on medications and undetectable, they cannot pass on HIV to you. You have as much chance of catching somebody HIV of somebody who is HIV undetectable as you do to somebody who is HIV negative. Mm. This is the world that we live in now. The medications that we have, the knowledge that we have, the advances that we have. And as I said, our goal as a community, the slogan of New Zealand AIDS Foundation for years has been ending HIV by 2025. Mm. I don't doubt at all that that is going to happen. To me, that was a pipe dream. When they first came up with that, I thought, well, it's nice to have a goal. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. That's cute, you know. Yeah, yeah. Good, good on them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, good on them to, to dream. Mm. But I believe it. Mm. I know it. I have seen things I would never have seen in my lifetime. So I know we will see the end of HIV. But we have made advances in HIV like no other field. They haven't got anything like this for cancer mm. or for Parkinson's mm. or for dementia or for any of the other things that have affected my life and people that I've lost. Mm. And to have this in HIV, and the only reason we have it is because of activists and people putting their name, their face, and standing up and having their voices heard and getting out there and saying, we need to do this and we're not going to stop talking about this until it's done. Like no other community, like no other medical field has had the support that the HIV community has. And that started with activism. I think that's really important what you're saying there. You know, as a younger person who is a daily prep user, I exist in the way I do because of my elders in the community. Mm -hmm. You speak of the activism and that community that got us to this point. And I think it is so deeply inspiring to know that my heritage as a gay person are these incredible people who have fought through their own trauma that have fought the system, that have spoken up, spoken out, and have been extraordinarily brave in speaking to their experiences that have allowed us to get to this point where, you know, you were talking about your family members and the young people you know in your life who are so aware of themselves. We have only got to this point because of people like yourself, because of people like Steph. Yeah. And I think, particularly for this episode where we're commemorating World AIDS Day, I want to say on behalf of myself and on behalf of every single young queer person listening to this podcast, thank you. Well, thank you. I, I get inspired by the younger generations as much as I hope they get inspired by people like myself, us old boomers, <laughs> uh, because I see them, like yourself, acknowledging we didn't just wake up to this wonderful world, we were just born into this wonderful world. It wasn't always this way. No. People had to fight like mm. crazy. And, you know, it cost a lot of lives and a lot of people had some pretty horrible experiences along the way. Mm. I remember in 1994, 
I went to the Gay Games in New York. And my pilgrimage for me when I went to New York was to go to Stonewall. Oh, yes. Uh, and to stand outside Stonewall, which is a tiny little pub, tiny little, it was only about 20 foot wide, not even <laughs> that, to stand outside it and say thank you because Stonewall is where activism in the rainbow community started. And here we are 50 years later mm. with what's been achieved in that time. It's phenomenal. So any young gay man, I look, I encourage you, get to know your gay history, get to know your history 101, because there were some extraordinarily brave people mm. that we would not be here without. We would not have the advances in HIV AIDS without those people who stood up and said, I am not going to be silenced. I want results and I am going to pound down your door until I get them. That's so. absolutely right. Well, you know, we owe our privilege to trans people of colour, yeah. to people yeah. living with HIV. You know, we live this life because those people pushed against the system. And those advancements, you know, 50 years is, in the grand scheme of things, an extraordinarily short amount of time. And we have had these advancements because those people did not stop. And, you know, as you said, there's still a way to go, ending HIV yeah. by 2025. Yeah. <laughs> and I would encourage all of our listeners, young, middle-aged, older audiences, let's all get behind this movement together, united, and carry this mission forward until we have reached its end. Yeah. That is how we will achieve it. Absolutely. Uh, and that's why I do what I do. Mm. When I first started speaking, um, going out to even to universities, and I would go to graduating nursing students' mm. classes and find out that I was the first gay person that they'd ever met or the first HIV positive person that they'd ever met, and they'd never had any classes about it. And I thought, but hold on. You're going out into the medical community, you're graduating, and you haven't had a single lesson on HIV? You haven't talked to a person with HIV? What are you taking out there with you? What is it that you know or you don't know? You know, and you would find out that they would think that um, you can get HIV from a mosquito bite or something like that, and you would have to explain HIV is not an interspecies disease. You know, you, it can't be spread from one species to another and things like that. Or you would ask them the various ways they think that you could get HIV and they still, some would still think that it was an airbound disease mm. and things like this. When, in one of our earlier episodes, we actually discussed a Comar Brunton poll about the, it was the 2018 Comar Brunton poll about New Zealanders' attitudes towards people living with HIV or their knowledge on HIV. And it was just astounding to think that, you know, 46 or 48% of people would not let their child play with another child if they knew that child was living with HIV. Yeah. And so even today in the broader community, there's still stigma. Yes, still. And it comes from lack of understanding. Mm. It comes from, stigma comes from fear, which comes from ignorance, mm. which is a lack of education. And it's not for the lack of trying to get it out there. There are so many communities trying to get it out there. And as I say, it's, why we do what we do and go to the places and talk to the people that we do. Even quite recently, about a year ago, I went and had a, a blood test at a laboratory who I know treated a lot of people with HIV, etc. And after the blood test, not that there was a, a single drop of blood there, but the nurse handed me the Band-Aid and asked me to put it on myself because she didn't want to touch me in case there was any blood. And I was astounded because I thought, but surely you must know what undetectable means. And I walked out of there quite befuddled. I think, what, what are you doing working as a phlebotomist in an HIV clinic mm. if you don't understand undetectable and you are scared of getting a drop of blood on you? 
So there's a long way still to go, but we have a lot of voices that have come on board. We have uh, amazing voices in the community, and it's not just gay people or rainbow people. Some of our biggest advocates, some of our biggest stalwarts are straight women, straight men who are on our side. It's phenomenal. We will knock this bugger off by 2025, I'm I'm convinced. (laughs) As part of our um, commemoration, and and I always like to think every day of World AIDS Day as being a a celebration as well because, you know, we're kind of um, remembering and commemorating people who weren't maybe as fortunate as we were to make it through. I, I was diagnosed 12 years ago, was at a time where the medication was so much further advanced than than when you were first diagnosed and obviously much further advanced than the, the very beginning when there was no medication to help. So I, I feel really lucky and, and I always like to to remember some of the people that maybe didn't make it and and not think of it as necessarily a sad time, but try and remember the the really beautiful things about them. I have a story. I think I have told this on an earlier podcast about um, a friend of mine who was very ill when I was living in London and who was going to be having people come and say goodbye to him, basically. And so he said to me, would you come and, and cut my hair in the hospital? So... I went into the hospital and I cut his hair and one of the nurses came past and said to me, this is really amazing what you're doing. Would you want to to maybe come and do this for other patients? Which was um, something, of course, I wanted to do. And, and so each couple of weeks I would go in and I would give someone a, a haircut or trim their beard or oh. give them a shave or something like that, just stuff that they couldn't necessarily do. And there was a guy one week who wanted me to give him a haircut and give him a wet shave. And so we did that and, and we got talking and he was a really, he was quite young, very beautiful, alive young person. And I said, oh, are you having family or friends coming to see you? And he said, no, I'm I'm not actually, but I just, I saw you cutting someone's hair and I thought that was really nice. And I haven't really had any physical contact for a really long time. Oh. And I thought it would actually just be a lovely thing. And so I I started going and visiting him and I worked out that a lot of what had happened with him in terms of him not having friends around him was because he'd sort of driven people away. He didn't want people to see him when he was ill. And I talked him into getting in contact with some of his friends. You know, this was before the time of Facebook or anything like that. So we had to track down people's phone number, even before the time of email. So we had to track down people's phone numbers and... And we had this really beautiful little celebration with just three of his friends that he hadn't seen for a long time. Um, and everyone came along and someone bought champagne and he got a bit tipsy. And we just had this really beautiful celebration of a person who had kind of given up on any contact with the outside world. And it was a really special moment. And I think some of those friends kept going and seeing him and you know, it kind of opened up a little piece of himself because he knew his family had turned their back on him. But there were still people who really cared for him, who really wanted to be there for him. And I think he'd, he'd forgotten what that might have been. And it's something that I think is, you know, it's it's not so much what happens anymore because, you know, it's not a death sentence, as mm. you said anymore. But there was a time where a lot of people were just sort of left on their own. And, yeah, it was lovely to think that this young man wasn't left that way. He had people around him. I'm glad you, you started off by saying that you see World Ads Day as a celebration, Mm. because I do too now. And that dawned on me a few years ago, because it wasn't always that way. For the first few decades, World Ads Day was a time to grieve. Mm. It was a bereavement. It was a devastating time. I can remember the early days of the AIDS quilts being laid out and, mm. and people making patches for the AIDS quilt. You were quite involved with that, um, weren't you? I, in the early days, not so much involved as in I saw the really early start of mm. it. I did see some of the very first few patches being made and being put together and, and joined together. Mm. I went to one of the first ever displaying of the quilts and it was mm. out in a, a, a field. You just stood there looking at this quilt, and I can remember, I don't know whether it was on the outside or on the inside, but crying hysterically Mm. at the loss and the devastation, Mm. just 
hardly being able to comprehend, to mm. con contemplate what was happening before my eyes. Mm. As I said earlier, I lost count of the friends and the associates that I, mm. I lost at 30, 40, 56, who, who knows? Yeah. It, it just, it got to a point where you just lost count. Mm. And I can remember a really sad point for me as I started forgetting some of their names. And I felt ashamed that I would go to talk about somebody and their name would escape me because there were just so many. Mm. And it was that way for so long. That's that's why I guess that the quilt was such an important thing because it was, it was. reminding people and commemorating, it was. wasn't it? And it was keeping I, those people in our in our hearts and indeed. in our minds. I went to I was very, very lucky I was invited to speak at the thirtieth anniversary of the Rainbow Quilt Memorial. Mm. I remember beautiful Blaze being there. It was a change in time for me where I hadn't realised I'd gone past the stage of all the, the grief and the devastation to a point where, for me, this was to stand up and be proud. This was a time of, as you said, let's celebrate mm. in their memory Let's not forget, but let's celebrate. And I can remember going and having a look at the quilt on the wall and having my moment of homage, of reverence, mm. of the names of people flooding back to me, knowing a lot of the names that were on the quilt that was before us. And I thought about, and I, my speech was about, it was one of those moments where oftentimes now I don't go with the speech prepared. That's often a really bad thing to do in public speaking <laughs> is to prepare a speech because it does not go the way you think it's mm -hmm. going to go. You go by the room, you go by the feeling, by the emotion, by mm -hmm. the, whatever story comes to mind is, is meant to be. And after looking at the quilt and standing there, in awe and in thanks, I thought about how we as nations have our Lest We Forget commemoration for things like Anzac and how this rainbow quilt was our Lest We Forget, that this was a permanent record in time of a devastating time in our lives that mm. we will never, ever make sense of. I once had a counsellor say to me when I could not make sense of some of the abuse that I went through as a child, stop trying to make sense of stupid because stupid will never make sense. Mm. And it was one of those light bulb moments for me. It was almost a time when I, looking at that quilt and going, I'm so sorry. I am not going to make sense of this, but I am going to celebrate your life mm. and I'm going to live my life in a way that's going to make you proud. Mm. And I hope that you see me because I know they're around me. I know they're looking down on me. I know they follow me and all of us. I believe that they're around me mm. and part of my life. They will always be part of my life. Mm. And I hope that they are looking and thinking, that's awesome, mate. We're so happy for you. They didn't get the gay marriage. They didn't mm. get the opportunity to be a father or a grandfather or even some of them to be considered legal. You know, they didn't get the rights that we have and the occasions we have or anything like that. But I hope that they know that they are a big part of why we have them now. Absolutely, yeah. And let's be done with the morning. Let's celebrate their lives for what their lives achieved for us. Let's say thank you and let's see this as a time of celebration and being grateful mm. and it's and a, a real shift now mm. it, yeah it's a time of love and looking forward mm. and going thank you so much i will not forget you mm. what you did has changed my life and the lives of all those that follow 
thank you so much, lest we forget. Yeah. And that's what our that's what our quilt is. They are our lest we forget, mm. and they are so important. And I encourage all the Rainbow community to remember that, to turn up to the AIDS memorials, to turn up to World AIDS Day events, mm. to hunt out those quilts, to look at those quilts, to understand what they mean and that we are standing, you know, on the shoulders of giants. Mm. I have the rights, even as a an older gay man, I have the rights that I have because of them putting their names, you know, their faces, their names and standing up and saying, I'm going to be counted. And they lost their lives so that others will learn from that and, and mm. know from that. Yeah. You know, a lot of them put themselves forward for all sorts of kinds of strange medications and experiments and just to try, just to hope, and, and that's why we have what we have now. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. I'm so thrilled you said uh, I see it as a celebration because now after 30-odd years of grieving and mourning, so do I. Mm. I, along with Blaze, will be speaking at a World AIDS Day event, this World AIDS Day Solidarity. We talked about how excited we are about it and how we're looking forward to it. I used to mourn. I used to hate the thought of World AIDS Day because mm. I just knew it would be miserable. Yeah, I wouldn't cope at all and I now... I'm excited about them because we have so much to celebrate. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, we really, really do. And, you know, every year I remember going to the the candlelight vigils and it was a way of the community coming together and, and trying to collectively mourn or grieve or, you know, also celebrate, you know, remember people fondly and, and just come together and, and try and create some hope, I guess. And I guess now that we're in a place where, you know, there is more hope. And as you say, 2025 to end this epidemic is an amazing hope. And mm. and I guess now is a time for us to move forward, but not to forget. No. Um, and just to always hold those those amazing people in our hearts. And, and it's a and beautiful, it's a, the quilts are such a beautiful record to mm, have. They I really mean, are, yeah. You know, like the gay community, they are fabulous. Yeah. They're, they're not mournful at all. They no. are bright and they are glitterful and they scream fabulous. Mm, and that's mm. what we have to remember. These people led fabulous lives, yeah. you know. They were not shy people. Mm. They were the drag queens, the ones that got out there and said, I'm me and I'm fabulous, yeah, you yeah. know, and that's what we are celebrating. Mm. They, they were amazing people. I love it that the idea of making a quilt was was created because it was traditional craft in a very sort of white, middle-class, bourgeois sort of type of craft. And a lot of those people were the people that were sort of, um, you know, going against helping the, you know, what was going on in our community. It was almost a kind of a two fingers up saying, <laughs> well, we'll take this thing that you think is yours and we're going to make it ours. It's like a, a real political act, but, you know, using something that's a beautiful tradition form of craft, which is gorgeous. And another thing they did too, talking about the craft, uh, which I thought another, you know, finger up to, mm. to society, as it were, which I thought was just beautiful, is they would often use the fragments from clothes, from drag dresses and uh, things like that. Uh, uh, and I thought that is so awesome. And they would explain in their patch, because people would get up and they would talk about their patch. And they'd say, and this was made from the dress that he wore at such and such. And, <laughs> and I would be there smiling away thinking, that is just fabulous. Beautiful, you know? yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. How can we see the quilts? So the quilts, there are two ways that you can see the quilts. There is the New Zealand AIDS Memorial quilt, which is housed at Te Papa in Wellington right. and is brought out for various exhibitions. It's stored in their archive. They've got, you know, beautiful archival things storing it. But the New Zealand AIDS Foundation actually has in our position that we care for 13 individual panels that we bring out at various events. And I have the great honour at the NZAF of, I guess, being the kaitiaki or the, the guardian, I guess, of these beautiful, beautiful taonga of our community. Mm. Actually, Paul, one of the events that I remember very, very fondly from quite early on at my time at NZAF was an unveiling earlier this year 
of the 13th quilt, which was donated by a family, the quilt of a gentleman called Grant Cotter. Cotter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, that, that, deeply moving. Oh, that was beautiful. I have to say, I was asked to go along and speak mm. uh, at the sunbathing. I had no idea who the patch was for, who it belonged to or anything like that. And I walked in and I saw the name and I had to stop myself for a moment because it was a former flatmate. Oh, wow. Uh, And it was somebody who I'd flattered with back in the 80s. And I had often, often thought about Grant over the years and I knew he wasn't well when Mm. we were flatting together. I did not know how unwell he was. And when I saw the name, I was just taken aback for a while. I had to just stand there and go, oh, hi, Grant. How are you, love? You know, I'm so glad that we met up again. You know, I I was meant to be the one to talk that day, Mm. to connect with Grant one more time and say, Thank you for our time together. I remember you. I remember our conversations. I remember going flatting with you. I remember our, it was um, in the places at the top of Simon Street, well, on the corner on Simon Street, those big grey buildings, different concrete buildings there, um, the council flats. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And ours was literally, as you walked straight off the street, we were at floor level and we would see the whole of Simon Street walk past Amazing. on our balcony. And they were times I look back with scary times in my life, but those moments in that little flat were fondly remembered. Mm. And having that, that opportunity to know what happened, to see the patch that his parents had looked after, uh, his family looked after for all those years, and to say goodbye to Grant, that was a rare, rare closure. Amazing. That I ever got to say goodbye to a friend like that. Mm. It was beautiful. It was one of those days like the 30th anniversary of the uh, Court Memorial that I will always, always carry with me for that rare moment of closure, for that new understanding, to meet his family. And I cannot remember the name of the other speaker, but gosh, he was amazing. Uh, Welby Ings. Thank you. So he created a a few panels, actually, and he spoke to one that was being displayed. I'm sorry for getting his name because he he spoke beautifully. Mm. That was such a moving little memorial and actually after it I know they went next door and had food and drinks etc and I sort of I had to leave then I was at saturation point as far as my emotions (laughs) yeah but it was the most touching talk that I've had that Mm. I've given and to have been a part of that was such an honour and a privilege and it was one of the many beautiful moments that Blaze and I have got to share in our times of doing events like that. Beautiful. But it it was, that was special. I still think about you, Grant. Mm. I still do. Mm. Well, he's he's with us, you know. We care for his, his quilt and he is the actually... We marched with Grant and his quilt in the Pride Parade. I sent a photo to his family of our team holding his quilt as we marched, and it was just phenomenal. I can, um, I can see his smile. As you, uh, as just as you say that, yeah. I can see his smile. Uh, and, and, you know, you speak about the vibrancy of these quilts. Grant's yeah. is a phenomenal example. You know, it's mm. a bright pink border. It's got this gorgeous rainbow, all this beautiful tie-dye fabric. The family printed, because he was a writer, and they printed some of his writing, his handwritten writing, onto fabric and sewed it into the quilt. It's transcendent. Um, So his voice is literally speaking to you Mm. when you view the quilt. For the listeners out there who do want to see the quilts, you can also view them virtually at aidsquilt.org.nz and that will take you to the New Zealand AIDS Memorial Quilt Project site. You can take a look for yourself at the panels and and the various quilts. Wonderful.
How amazing it's been, Paul, having you and, and having you share your story and, and us reminiscing about people that we've lost, but also people that we celebrate and we keep, we keep their, their love in our hearts. So thank you so much. It's been beautiful. I've, look, I've enjoyed going back in time mm. and reflecting. And thank you very much for this opportunity to, once again, not just tell my story, but tell the story of all those that came before us who have given us what we have now. And to be able to talk about the hope that we have, the advances that we've made, mm. it's been special. Yeah, thank you so is. much. Thank you. This episode of Sexual Transmission is brought to you by U Equals U. U Equals U stands for Undetectable Equals Untransmittable. That means if a person living with HIV is able to lower their viral load in their bloodstream to an undetectable level and maintain it through regular testing and antiretroviral therapy, then it is impossible for that person to pass on HIV to their partners. If you'd like to find out more about U Equals U, head to our website at endinghiv.org.nz forward slash U Equals U. What a fabulous interview that was. It was incredible. I know that there's going to be loads and loads of people who have questions about how they can join in on fundraising mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of help out with the foundation. You know, World AIDS Day is obviously an amazing fundraising day, but mm. um, there's things you can do all year round. Oh, right? absolutely. There's so many ways that people can contribute to the cause. Uh, World AIDS Day may be one day a year, but the organisation runs 365. The first thing, first and foremost, is volunteering. We have a massive volunteer base at the AIDS Foundation. People can come and pack condoms with us. You know, we, as a foundation, distribute 800,000 condoms nationwide every year that all need packing individually. And we have an amazing team of volunteers who join us in our Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch centres who do that weekly, every Wednesday. Come along to the Big Gay Out you know, we've got fabulous lineups of talent, community stalls. There's some fundraising stuff there if you're wanting to donate money there. Come along to Ending HIV events or Ending HIV sponsored events, mm. usually community-based events. That's an, another amazing way to support the cause and to engage with our messaging. Cool. If you weren't able to participate in a Red Friday fundraiser for World AIDS Day this year, you can actually just go to our website, nzaf.org.nz, and donate there. You can sign up for a regular donation or a one-off donation. There are plenty of ways to engage with us and to support the cause. Amazing. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about next. Tell us on our Instagram, which is endinghivnz. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share with all your friends. And check out the show notes for all the juicy links and resources. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye.